So we're going to John chapter 6, very familiar passage. So as we read this, um, think about those other texts we read uh, that talk about the bread from heaven where God's people in Exodus were supposed to obediently gather the bread. God was truly sustaining them day by day. Um, and then think in Matthew 6 that uh, some people were, some, some doubters were asking for a sign and they were rebuked for that. Um, and then the passage we read from Romans 9 about God's will ties nicely into John chapter 6 uh, with God truly being the, uh, the doer and the mover uh, even of our own hearts, which we think are uh, ours alone. Uh, truly, that's part of God's kingdom as well. Um, and then in Revelation, the hidden manna that was promised to those who persevere. Uh, so with all those uh, in mind, um, please stand and we'll read God's word. I'll, I'll pray for us before we do. Um, yeah, please stand. Um, So let's pray, and then we'll read this uh, John 6, starting at verse 22. Lord, open our hearts to your word. Um, Help us to trust you. Help us to take you at your word. Even your own disciples, when you said these words to them, said it was a hard word, but help us to receive it well. Convict us with your truth. Remind us that when your word speaks, that it is you who is speaking to us. We thank you for using um, imperfect vessels to do your work and explaining to us uh, how your kingdom is supposed to work. Open our hearts and help us understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John 6, starting at verse 22. Don't lock your knees. Uh, It's a longer passage. Uh, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, give to you. For on him the Father's, Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputing among themselves, disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God.
Well, um, as much as I want to just uh, present a really good, um, you know, well-stated and um, bulletproof uh, message, uh, I recognize that uh, we're in a small group, uh, so if something I say is confusing or uh, needs to be clarified, it's okay to ask a question. Um, so um, to get started here, uh, you may remember, um, if you attend here on Sunday evenings, you may remember an exhortation that I offered in April. Um, and the point of that exhortation was it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith that is, makes our faith effective. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. So somebody with um, seemingly weak faith still has so great a salvation because of the object of their faith. And I think there are times where we, we look at the quality of our faith and we want it to be, to be better and stronger. And we sometimes confuse faith that saves and the process of sanctification. And so we can, can wrongly connect the quality of our faith with God's blessing in our lives. Um, although God does bless those who believe and are faithful, um, he blesses a lot of other people too. So um, inc- including me and, and some others here in this room. Um, so just thinking back to that message, I, I'd like this message to be... Um, that message was really ambitious, and you're probably looking at the text tonight going, well, what's this? This is pretty ambitious too. Um, we will not uh, exhaust all of John 6 tonight, but there are a few key points that I want to, to bring up. And I, I see this as kind of a coda on that, last, um, on that last message. So if you want to go back and hear that, you can. Um, you don't have to. Uh, it was kind of a longer message than I had intended. So here's my opportunity to be brief, right? So in reading John 6, the part that we read, um, I focused in on this main idea that the duty of all believers is to simply believe. And God builds his kingdom through the work of faith. And I know that some of you might have alarm bells in your heads. Wait, did he just say the work of faith here in Cross Creek, where we know that it's not of works? I don't want to turn faith into a work. But faith does sometimes feel like work. And Christ tells us in John 6 that our work is to believe. So believing might not be as easy as you thought, especially as you saw many of them, many of them couldn't believe. They went away after he gave them that hard word. So when I talk about faith, I'm not talking about blind faith um, as though just believe, just hit the I believe button, just believe and you'll be fine. No, we should have a reason for our faith, and we do. Uh, We have it in Scripture, and we have it confirmed in us through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about faith in what we have been convicted by the Spirit through the Word, Uh, faith in a a resurrected Christ who has uh, defeated sin and restored us to the Father. And when I use the word work, I'm not talking about work for righteousness' sake. We don't need those kinds of works. Praise God. 
Christ's righteousness is sufficient for everybody here. I'm talking about iterative work of carrying out kingdom tasks and callings. So um, just a quick review of some points from that previous exhortation. One of the main points was a mistake we make is turning faith into work, the wrong kind of work, not the right kind of work. So the definition of faith I'm using is knowledge, belief, or assent, and trust. Three components. They're all vital. None of them alone are helpful. If we trust in something unknown or we don't seek knowledge about something that we believe, these aren't helpful. We have to have knowledge, assent, and trust. And then we use the example of Noah's family executing their faith by going into the ark. They would have been really silly if they said, yeah, that ark can save us, but then they didn't go inside. Another point uh, from that exhortation was a mistake we make is turning work into sacrifice. Um, And um, the sacrifice component is important, but it's not our work that's a sacrifice. It's it's Christ's body and blood, His, his perfection. He took on sin. He who knew no sin took on sin. And this, we have, uh, um, there's an idea from the Old Testament called the suzerain-vassal treaty, where uh, the suzerain was the powerful king and the vassal was the uh, weaker king. And the way the weaker king would secure his kingdom was by making a treaty with a suzerain. Um, And in many of these treaties, um, the weaker king brought very little to the table. Uh, indeed, there was some exchange of like goods or tribute, or if there was a call to war, the suzerain, the higher king, would expect military support from the weaker king. But really, the the weaker king, uh, in my understanding of the suzerain vassal treaty, often the the weaker king uh, gained more. And whether that's fully true or not, the example I'm getting at is that we gain much more from God in his treaty with us, in the covenant he makes with us for salvation, uh, he gains very little. Um, We gain everything. We gain life, as we read. Uh, The other points of that sermon were a couple of other, sorry, exhortation, where uh, we turn sacrifice into merit, and then we turn merit into self-righteousness. But really, we need to stop making those four mistakes, and we need to focus on repentance from our self-righteousness, and instead trusting in Christ's righteousness. So that's a quick overview of that uh, exhortation. And um, to kind of continue on with the same theme of faith, I'd like to uh, talk briefly about the two H's, heuristics and hermeneutics. So heuristics. This is a a word from, um, dates back to the 1700s, and it means a mental shortcut that we use to simplify problems and avoid cognitive overload. This is how we live our lives every day. Um, When the light turns green, you go. You don't always check every single part of the intersection, although it would be wise to do so. We have mental heuristics that allow us to take shortcuts. Um, You know, every time we hear a dog bark in our neighborhood, we don't think, oh, wild animals chasing me. Because it would be it would be miserable to live a life with constant threats. So we have these heuristics. Unfortunately, though, sometimes we bring our heuristics to Scripture. We read into what Jesus or others are saying with our own lenses and our own shortcuts. Instead of using heuristics, uh, 
I'd like to use what are appropriately called hermeneutics. Um, this is also an old word from the 1600s. Um, hermeneutics are the principles by which we interpret Scripture. And some examples of these hermeneutics would be Reformed, Biblical, Covenantal. Those would be the ones that we use in our church. There are indeed plenty of other hermeneutics um, that are probably uh, more associated with the academic understanding of of the Bible, um, and we typically don't don't use those hermeneutics here. But I just wanted to to briefly touch on those. Um, when you, when you hear Jesus say something, especially in John six, try to turn off your heuristics and try to turn on your hermeneutics. Things about Reformed theology, biblical theology, and covenantal theology. So, um, one more note before we get going: um, the words "truly, truly." Uh, Jesus says those uh, 25 times, I think, in in John alone. Um, This is where we need to pay attention. It's the same word that would mean amen at the end of a statement, but by putting it at the front of the statement, especially putting it there twice, he's declaring a solemn truth that that he, I get the impression that he believes his hearers are overlooking it, so he has to put truly, truly in front of it to get them to kind of you know, foot stomp it a little bit. So um, with all those things said, uh, I'd like to make a few comments on some of these verses. Going to verse 26 of John chapter 6. Verse 26. This is where he says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Um, some people were just interested in the material benefits of following Jesus. Remember, he had just fed the 5,000, uh, and there was so much left over. He was doing amazing things. People were being healed. Um, resources were flowing miraculously. So he had quite a wagon train of, you know, an entourage, you might say. Um, he had his 12, but then he had, you know, some, some followers beyond that who were following him around, and then he had just sort of looky-loos from nearby who would come to hear him preach. But unfortunately, some of these people were interested in the material benefit of following Jesus, not necessarily the truth he proclaimed. And the reason I bring that up is to ask, why are we seeking Jesus? Why are you seeking Jesus? Is it for the signs or for the lobes? The signs being the signs that he is the Savior, and the lobes being maybe the material or cultural benefits of living as a Christian. It's not too hard to be a Christian in a mostly Christian society, right? Uh, and sometimes you fit in a lot better if, uh, if you sort of go to church and, uh, yep, yeah, I bow my head when we pray. You know, I'm a, I'm a decent person. Put my hand over my heart. Um, so I ask you to introspect a little bit. Why are you seeking Are you here for the signs or the loaves? And then Jesus goes on in verse 29 to talk about that work, that work of belief. Um, What is the work of believers in God's kingdom? Well, he told us it's to believe. Doing the works could be translated as labor. So um, it reminds me of the, the parable of the wages and the laborers. Jesus wants his hearers to work for food that gives eternal life. 
not just the immediate needs of daily life, which were very pressing for these, these people that were following him around. Um, but he keeps steering them back to think about their eternal life, their spiritual life, not just what they need today. Um, you know, a similar passage in Matthew. He, he says, be anxious for nothing. So people misunderstood Jesus and asked about this work that is required by God. Um, you know, he starts, talk, he starts by talking about uh, the food that doesn't perish. And then uh, he's, they say, what must we be do to be doing the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Inspirational, right? Um, I, it, sounds, it sounds like it to me. Wait till you hear their response. So although we, are not, um, although we are not saved by works, meaning we're saved by our faith connecting us to Christ's righteousness and Christ taking our penalty, we must work if we are part of God's kingdom. So to believe that we're somehow going to be in the kingdom and not have to work at all um, is a misconception. But the, the, main, the main way... Jesus articulates this work as belief. And I would ask you to look back in the times of your life when even believing has been a challenge, even, even trusting that God is taking care of everything. It's a challenge. I know it has been for me at times. Our work is to believe. This work, in my notes I put air quotes, this work, because it's, it's such a, we're not supposed to ever say works in relation to faith or salvation, right? So this work is a critical piece of salvation. So in one sense, we are saved by works, and you you would have heard this in that last exhortation as well, but they're not our works. And we'll see more of that in verse 36 and 44. The works that save us are not our works, but the works that we do in response to being saved, one of them, believing, is a, a critical piece of God building his kingdom. So, uh, yeah, back to those hearers. Jesus, uh, he sort of drops the mic. He's like, uh, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. And you think that next it would be like, so they all came to the faith. So they all believed. Not quite. And you may see this in your own life experience. How many times have you told people, you have to believe to be saved? And then they they say something like this. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? There it is again, work. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're kind of like, we're going to go Old Testament on you, Jesus. See what you think about this. We read Exodus. So he says to them, here it is again. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The hearers want a sign, but I'll reference you back to Matthew 16. What was said about the generation who wants a sign that they would believe? Wicked and adulterous. So, it's an easy trap to fall into, and I would, I would caution any believer about needing needing something more than Scripture and the conviction of the Spirit. Uh, 
the hearers want a sign. And people today say the same thing. Well, if I could just see a miracle, or if I just could have seen Jesus ascending, you know, the one sign he probably could have given that would have proven to everybody was to take himself down off the cross, but he chose not to do that. And I'm glad he chose not to do that. Um, We have hope. Because he would not give the sign that would have definitively proven he was the Son of God, we have hope now. Um, So remember what he said about people asking for signs. Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about the true source of the manna. No, my Father gave that to you. Jesus also uses this example to explain the manna was merely a temporary physical nourishment. By comparison, Jesus wants to provide permanent spiritual nourishment, offering his own flesh. And I think back to that part of Exodus 16 that we read, where they had a pattern. They had to go gather the manna every day. It did not arrive at their doorstep. They had to, you guessed it, work. The manna was there, and it nourished them and kept them alive. But they had to go get it. And I feel like if I say the word work one more time, everyone's going to go, that's it. This guy thinks we're saved by works. Um, what I'm trying to highlight is that it is, a, it is a complex relationship where we are not saved by our own works. So we get no credit. Our works are simply things that God wants done in his kingdom. Gathering the manna doesn't make the manna show up. Gathering the manna just takes advantage of the blessing and the plan God has already provided. Um, So we can't take credit for, just like the Hebrews couldn't take credit for the manna showing up. Oh, look how much manna I gathered. What would happen to the manna if they kept it? It would spoil. Like, man, you're a fool. Look how much manna you gathered. That's all going to go bad. Except on Saturday, well, I guess Friday, they would, they would gather twice as much because they were supposed to, and then it wouldn't spoil. So there is this connection we see now that doing things God's way actually makes sense and makes our lives better, but we shouldn't do it God's way simply because we want our lives to be better. Back to the signs and the loaves. We don't follow Jesus for the loaves. We follow him because the signs prove that he's the Son of God. So these people want life. They say they want life anyway but they can't see it. It's right in front of them. He says, they say, give us this bread always. And he says, I am the bread of life. And then later on, he says it again, I am the bread of life. Truly, truly. They're not getting it. And sometimes we don't get it. But moving on to verse 36. Doing the will of his Father in heaven. So some have seen Jesus and not, still don't believe But Jesus tells us he will receive all that the Father gives him, and he won't cast any out that the Father gives him. It doesn't mean he won't cast anyone out. It means he won't cast anyone out that the Father gives him. He is able to say this because he knows he's doing his Father's will, and because he intimately knows the Father's will, which is to build the kingdom through kingdom work. People come to Jesus willingly. Indeed, they have to acknowledge that they believe. But I think most of us would realize that later on in your life, believers tend to realize it was the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all along that brought us to willingly want even to believe. In verse 44, he tells us the Father must draw. So we're skipping down a little bit to verse 44. You can only come to, the, to Jesus if the Father draws you. And I think this is echoed in Romans nine sixteen. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs but of God who shows mercy. So what does this mean? Human effort, work, and desire are not the deciding factors in salvation. It's God who shows mercy. So can we get out of this by claiming that God draws all people and some reject him? Well, yeah, of course, he draws everybody. 
but then people on their own choose to reject him, which is true on a surface level. But emphatically, no, I don't think we can get out of this by simply making that statement. When taken in context with, ver- with verse 36 about, I will keep all the Father has given me, and none can come to me unless the Father draws him, when you combine those two things together, Jesus is telling us that it is God who draws and God who secures. Jesus is doing the will of his Father. He knows the Father so well that he knows exactly who his sheep are. So, how can Jesus speak with such certainty? In verses 47 through 51, the reason Jesus can speak with such certainty is because he, he himself is the bread of life, and he knows that he's going to sacrifice his own flesh. He knows that he's kept the law. He knows that he's been sent by the Father. He knows that he has fulfilled the law for righteousness' sake. He is the Messiah. So even if others don't know it, he knows it. And that's why he is able to tell people, if you believe in me, you have life. I am life. He knows his sacrifice will be sufficient and pleasing to the Father because he knows the Father and the Father knows him. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to trust in his personal, physical sacrifice at the cross. We participate in this through faith. Although it sounds like he's talking about communion and there is some connection there. I don't think specifically he's not like about to bring out the trays, you know. Um, and he's not exactly talking about the Passover either, but I think those are both connected. That's what helps people understand. I think that's part of why they were grossed out because at the Passover, you had to actually eat the lamb that was killed. You had to eat the meal and drink the cup. So when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, there was a quick misunderstanding. Um, But we participate in this through faith, and our practice of approaching the Lord's table for communion unites us to Christ through faith, which is further depicted by Passover, uh, like I just described with Israel. Uh, Moving forward to verses 57 and 58, Jesus connects it back to manna. So remember when they started out and they're like, well, our fathers ate the manna, Jesus. He's like, yeah, I know. Because his audience brought up the manna, Jesus continues with the example, saying that his flesh and his, his, his flesh and his bread are better than manna because it's the bread from heaven. And he says it like three times. Because he, it's like they keep not getting it and he keeps having to say it again. Well, that kind of caused me to go look at uh, Revelation um, 2 verse 17, hidden manna. And this word was kind of like, wait, hidden manna? When was it hidden? Well, to the believers that endure in Revelation, he says, to the ones that endure, he will supply hidden manna and a white stone. Uh, So this is still the idea of bread from heaven. To the ones who endure, he will sustain them. The manna sustained Israel in the desert. The bread of life sustained people in Jesus' time. And the hidden manna will sustain those who persevere to the end. The white stone that was given uh, that he talks about, there was a tradition in Jesus' time that people who were victorious at games would get a white stone to um, get admission into like a fancy banquet. So when he talks about the white stone, he's referencing the heavenly banquet, the the true meal, the final Lord's Supper. So we take communion here, although we're not doing that tonight. We are kind of envisioning what the, what the final Lord's Supper will be like. And he's telling the ones who endure, I will not only sustain them, but I'll give them admission. 
Jurors also used white stones uh, at the time when they would um, take a verdict, when they would come to their verdict. The ones who put a white stone out were acquitting the defendant. So not only will he sustain us with his manna, not only will he give us admission, but when we get there, we are not guilty. We are acquitted. So he's using these cultural references to try to explain um, to believers. Uh, and of course, Revelation is, you know, coded and difficult to understand at times. And I'm leaning on other scholars here. I'm not just making this up or finding it all myself. Uh, but Jesus is telling the ones who endure to the end that they will be victorious, that they will be invited to his banquet, and they will not have the guilt of their sin held against them. Um, so, uh, I, I appreciate uh, that's the... Uh, that's the end of the message tonight. I appreciate you all being here, and I thank the session for allowing me to um, offer another message. But I, I would like to close with uh, this quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton. We've all heard, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, right? And this morning we sang that Jesus does all things well. Thank God. Ch- Chesterton, though, said, if it's really worth doing, it's also worth doing badly. If it's that important, it's worth doing badly. And that's the encouragement I would give you when I give you this, when I say these simple things like, oh, the duty of all believers is just to believe. Just keep on believing. Sometimes we do it badly. Uh, Sometimes we are caught in our sin. Uh, Sometimes we hold other sin against them. Um, Sometimes we ignore sin to the point that it becomes uh, a huge issue within the church. Uh, And then we have to do the difficult work of gently and lovingly uncovering sin and praying for one another and being humble enough to hear other brothers and sisters tell us when we are in sin. And these things are not easy, but it's so important that it's worth doing badly. It's worth struggling. It's worth uh, giving Christ, uh, even though our worship is nothing compared to the worship he deserves, uh, it is the worship that we are convicted to give by the Spirit. Um, and thank God He does not accept our worship because of us, because of how good it is. He accepts it because uh, the Father accepts our worship because of Christ, because Christ has made us righteous. Um, So I would like to just close with that final encouragement. Uh, The duty of all believers is to simply believe. Now, if you believe, there's something that comes after that. You, You attend church. You do Christian things, you read your Bible, you pray. And I'm not here with a list of like, ooh, you read five times this week. No, I think we all know that uh, sometimes our Christian lives are inconsistent, but I do want to encourage you to to strive to be consistent in your Christian life, uh, to, to avoid those pitfalls that I mentioned at the beginning of the message that were in that last exhortation, uh, to rely on Christ, uh, just as we sang, all I have is Christ. Um, and indeed, that's all we need. Um, so with that final uh, encouragement, I'll pray for us, and then we'll have a song uh, to sing, uh, and then we'll spend a moment praying together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, and we can only come to you in the name of Christ. We know that our works are insufficient. 
and that we are found wanting. But we thank you that we have a Redeemer who has brought us back to the Father. We thank you that not only have you given us the work to believe, but you have empowered us to believe. You've given us faith. You've given us grace. It's all for you. It's all for your glory. Uh, We ask that you would uh, strengthen us in our as we set about our labor of believing, we ask that you would strengthen our hands and hearts uh, to do the difficult work that it takes uh, to be a part of your kingdom. It's difficult for us, but it's not difficult for you. And we are so grateful uh, that you have assured us of the end, even when we face trials now, that we know that we will end up with you in your kingdom forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.